You are tuned to KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and K201HR Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Support for KZYX comes from our members and Ivy Accounting and Payroll Services in Willits, specializing in bookkeeping and payroll services for local agriculture businesses and more, serving all of Mendocino County. More information at ivyaccounting.com or 489-5486. Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for September 15, 2021. I'm Joyla Clare. Returning to Forthright Radio is internationally renowned writer and cultural critic, Professor Henry Giroux. He is the McMaster University Chair for Scholarship in the Public Interest and the Paolo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy. Henry Giroux has authored or co-authored over 65 books, written several hundred scholarly articles, delivered more than 250 public lectures, and is one of the most cited Canadian academics working in any area of humanities research. He's on the board of directors for Truthout. He is particularly interested in what he calls the war on youth, the corporatization of higher education, the politics of neoliberalism, the assault on civic literacy, and the collapse of public memory, and the rise of various youth movements across the globe. His working-class roots inform his scholarship, writings, and lectures, which clearly and consistently articulate the predicament of the average person overwhelmed by the forces of global capitalism and critiquing the cultural forces supporting its destructive power. We spoke with Henry Giroux on September 11, 2021. Of course, that was the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on the United States, and Henry notes that it was the anniversary of the U.S.-backed military coup d'etat in Chile, in which the democratically elected president Salvador Allende was overthrown. But it was also the 80th anniversary of the beginning of construction of the Pentagon on September 11, 1941. Welcome back to Forthright Radio, Professor Henry Giroux. Thank you for joining us again. Oh, it's, a, it's always a pleasure, Joy. Henry, before we begin the main part of our interview, let's take a moment to remember the passing of Stanley Aronowitz. He was more than a colleague to you, although you did collaborate on at least three books together. Please share with our listeners who he was and some of the things he did. Well, Stanley was basically one of the foremost public intellectuals, in my estimation, of the 21st century. He started, he was a labor organizer. He ran for the governorship of New York, actually under the Green Party at one point. He was an intellectual. He taught in a variety of places, but ended up at CUNY in the graduate school. He was a mammoth figure. He had an enormous influence on many people on the left. 
MSP had an enormous capacity for bringing issues together that often were treated separately. And he was a, a democratic socialist. He really believed that socialism was a possibility. He wrote prolifically. And in my estimation, almost every book he wrote was a breakthrough book. Stanley was not a guy who repeated himself. He wasn't a guy who was derivative at all. I think he was enormously underestimated and not ever given the amount of credit he deserved, though he did have an enormous influence. It's just a, a very sad passing. I mean, he was a wonderful man. He was funny and humble. and He looked like a taxi driver. He's the kind of guy you, you'd get in a cab in Brooklyn and you'd say, oh yeah, this guy grew up in Brooklyn. I mean, he was humble, but brilliant and sharp. You never engaged in a conversation with Stanley in which you didn't learn something. And he was far ahead of the curve. And the thing that always impressed me about Stanley it was his scholarship. I mean, he he knew a lot about a lot of things, whether we're talking about the history of science or the Frankfurt School or just philosophy in general or political theory. He didn't tread lightly in terms of his own scholarship. He's enormously well-read in the tradition of 19th century intellectuals, whether we're talking about Herbert Marcuse or Adorno or people of that stature. He was of that stature. He's the passing of a generation. We're not going to find intellectuals like him anymore. I really believe that that generation basically is now coming to an end. And what we're now seeing are internet intellectuals. You know, we're seeing intellectuals who basically trade in single issues, silos, really make connections and seem to be quite quiet when it comes to the world in which they live. Well, Stanley Aronowitz Presente. Even though I realize that some will be offended and Others will utterly misunderstand what I'm about to say. We are recording this interview on September 11th, 20 years after the terror attacks on the United States. And in the midst of the horror and grief that I experienced on that day as the loss of so many innocent lives became clear, I also felt a certain hope that finally Americans having experienced such wanton murder by a foreign force, would get it, would feel viscerally how utterly wrong murdering innocent civilians for some ideological or religious reason is, and that it can never be justified. And aware as I was of the long history of this country's taking of innocent lives, whether the indigenous peoples of this continent or those in Central America, Southeast Asia, or many other places around the world, the average American would now deeply feel and understand the devastation, pain, and ramifications to the families of those murdered down through the generations of course, that was naive of me, but that was what I felt during the early days after the attacks. And Henry, I wonder what your thoughts are on this 20th anniversary of that day. My thoughts are twofold. At one level, when innocent people are killed, one always has to sit back and put this in a context in which, in the most immediate sense, you have enormous sense of empathy for the families that are affected by this. No question. The other side of this, and of course the much larger question, is why did it happen? What is it about our history that allowed this sort of thing to take place? And that means you have to engage in historical analysis about state violence, about war, about foreign policy, about why people would basically want to attack the United States under those circumstances, and in many ways, very similar to what you've said. 
9-11 really is not just 9-11-2001. 9-11 really, in some ways, should remind us of 9-11-1973, when the United States engineered a coup against Allende. And all of a sudden, we began to see what American foreign policy was about. It was about authoritarianism, it was about imperialism, and it was about the legacy of colonialism. And there was no way that we were going to escape that in a global world in which technologies were now emerging that allowed borders to become useless. But I think that what particularly shocks me at this moment, after watching a series of interviews on NBC and ABC with my wife, Rania, last night, is to see Condoleezza Rice sitting there with no sense of memory at all, not only defend uh, what took place after 9-11, which was really barbaric, but also the claim that we should still be in Afghanistan. When you look at the way in which 9-11 changed our understanding of war, how war now became global and completely began to ignore any sense of the various international treaties that talked about the horrors of war. War became ideological, it became religious, it became global, it became permanent. Secondly, it initiated the surveillance state in the United States. It launched the surveillance state. In many ways, that was more of a threat to the principles of freedom and equality than even probably the attack on 9-11. Third, it turned the notion of borders into, in, in some way, a new symbol of nativism. It increased the forces of ultranationalism. It increased the forces of militarism, and more than anything else, it initiated a culture of cruelty in which we now justified questions of terror, black holes, torture, the abduction of human beings and putting them on ships off the coast of New York and other places, sending them off the country so they could be tortured. This is the real legacy of 9-11, and it's completely ignored, except, of course, by a number of intellectuals who are now writing about it on the left. And so it, it seems to me that 9-11 is really a turning point in the United States in which the forces of domestic terrorism and state terrorism now join forces with the forces of foreign terrorism. And I think that terrorism takes on an entirely new quality in the sense that cannot be reduced to simply the horrendous and cowardly act of a number of Saudi Arabians crashing two planes into the Twin Towers. Well, you mentioned Afghanistan and the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, but the maintenance of the so-called over-the-horizon options, and that brings up drones. And very soon after the suicide bombing in which 13 U.S. military personnel were murdered, let's just call it murder because that's what I think it was, there was a drone attack that was supposedly getting one of the ISIS people, but people on the ground were saying that basically an entire family got wiped out. So again, this is the continuation of what I call wanton murder of innocent civilians. And even President Biden, who claims that he wants to withdraw from military excursions overseas, he's not taking that back. Do you have any thing to say about that continuation. I don't think we should ever underestimate the power of the military industrial complex. And I don't think that we should ever underestimate the power of militarism in the United States, because it seems to me it's not a policy that's simply reduced to Republican wackos who are now sort of appeared on the right and would be willing to invade every country in the world in order to extend American interests. The Democratic and Republican parties are basically war parties. These are parties heavily indebted to the defense industries. These are parties heavily indebted to the corporate interests. And these are parties that basically don't associate the rise of the military-industrial complex with, in fact, the war on terror that they generate all over the world and the killing of innocent people, including children and families. And I think as long as these policies continue, there'll be more attacks on the United States. 
I mean, the United States, in many ways, and many of the polls being taken in Europe and other countries, is rated as one of the top terrorist countries in the world. People are afraid of the United States. These are military actions that are unchecked and have no sense of social responsibility and seem to exist outside of the imperatives of the law. I mean, war has now become an act of lawlessness in a way that's global. And it's invisible, which is even worse. We don't have troops simply crossing borders. What we have are planes flying in the, in the midst of an invisible sky, killing people. Nobody sees it except when it happens. Nobody sees it coming. And I think we need to come to grips with what this means in a democracy. When you can kill innocent people with a technology that's almost impossible to stop, particularly for people who don't have military and technological and scientific resources to even be able to deal with it. This is a form of what I call post 9-11 vigilanteism. That's basically what it is. You hire contractors, they build these things, they go out, they kill people, they get paid, the profits rise, and basically the democratic state shrinks in the midst of the rise of the military industrial complex. Everything that we see now and what the drones represent in many ways is not just simply the concentration of power in the executive branch. What they really represent is that the state has been taken over by economic interests that profit for more. The United States is the largest arms dealer in the world. The United States has more nuclear weapons than any other country in the world. The United States has an army that it trains that basically comes from working class and poor people because they don't have jobs and they're unemployed. The United States is basically taking on the role of being a police person for the world in ways that have nothing to do with justice and everything to do with the legacy of colonialism. So I think that in many ways that drone attack, as you suggested, is enormously symptomatic of not only a history, but unfortunately a future that we don't really want to confront. I note that in much of the writing recently, the recounting of how many military personnel were killed in Afghanistan and Iraq is dwarfed by the numbers of suicides of military personnel who served in those countries. And it's becoming clear that the personnel in the United States who actually operate the drones are experiencing post-traumatic stress syndrome in ways that no one could have predicted, but it's a real thing. So the repercussions on our own people are not going to stop with the withdrawal of our forces from other countries. I have a lot of sympathy in many ways for people who basically engineer the weapons of death. I know it's stressful, to say the very least, to have to kill other people, especially if you don't believe that it's justified. But I have a lot more empathy for people who are being killed by these people. I mean, 900,000 people were basically killed in Iraq, if not killed, maimed, and expelled from their countries. The war cost $8 trillion. People are dying in the United States from poverty. They're dying from inequality. They're dying from housing. They're dying because they don't have jobs. They're dying because they have to choose between medicine and, of course, food. And I think the real issue here is that gangster capitalism is what we have here. And what that capitalism does is it generates a war culture in which not only people suffer abroad, but the people who suffer abroad basically are invisible bodies. They just disappear into the myth of war is, is justified. What we have at home now are repercussions in which we're able to see in very small numbers of what war does to people's mentality, what it does to their psyches, what it does to their sense of justice and honor. It cripples them. It paralyzes them. 
the suicide rates are up. You're right. I don't want to say I'm unsympathetic, but I want to say we need to link these conditions. We need to link the massive amount of death abroad being waged with the enormous suffering or, or the suffering that we're now seeing to begin in the United States among people who are operating drones who now allegedly have high suicide rates or breaking down or people coming back from war and are suffering from all kinds of mental illnesses. Our hearts go out to them, but the real focus has to be on the conditions that produce this. We don't want to get caught up in personal stories that personalize this stuff in ways that allow us to forget the conditions that produced it in the first place. All right. Well, let's explore some of those conditions. Speaking in the present now, you have written for I don't know how many decades about the concept of disposability of certain people. I want to expose my naiveness again. In our current situation with the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, we established in this country a designated class of essential workers. And my hope was that with this recognition that society can't function without them, that would lead to the elevation of their work with an increase in respect and remuneration. Well, that's not happening. (laughs) Actually, Henry, you were the one who introduced to me this concept of disposability. I wonder if you would speak a little bit about that now and how it's manifesting in our current situation. I think there are two elements of the concept of disposability that I've tried in some way to integrate, I don't know how successfully, into my own work. One is that the United States has a long legacy of disposability, whether it comes from the genocide waged against indigenous people, the genocide waged, of course, slaves, Jim Crow, the internment of of Japanese, the war on terror. I mean, all of these things basically operate off the assumption that societies are governed by a friend-enemy distinction, meaning that there are certain chosen people who basically tend to be white Protestant Christians who should occupy the public sphere and define policy and everybody else is worthless. Now, coming out of slavery and coming out of Jim Crow and coming out of the Second World War, those populations basically could be identified very quickly, and they were always identified on the side, of course, of a logic that was as ruthless as it was cruel. But what happens in the 1980s, and we see it first in Latin America, is we begin to see an economic system that renders people useless, not just politically, not just because they're on the left, but because they can't contribute to the economy. They're worthless. They're not generating profits. And all of a sudden, the range of people who becomes disposable on an economic level begins to expand itself. So farm workers are not really worthwhile and so forth and so on. Then that logic of disposability gets another hit with the rise of Reagan in the 1980s and the rise of the right-wing Republican Party that now asserts itself as a party of white supremacy. That, in turn, merges with a counter-revolutionary politics that is so freaked out by what happened in the 1960s with the rise of gay rights, the threat of immigration, the diversity of cities, the emergence in the universities of people on the left calling for the democratization of the university, and the opening up of the university to people of color, not just to basically to white people. All of this is an enormous racial threat to these neoliberal fascists who now are unabashed in their hatred of anybody who's not white and who is not rich. And so what you have happening here is a form of neoliberal fascism emerging in which the logic of disposability translates into the logic of racial cleansing and the logic of white supremacy and the logic of white nationalism. And so it seems to me that this logic of disposability operates off 
two registers that you have to become conscious of. One of those registers is that the public sphere is only for white people. That's about racial cleansing. The other issue, and it's central to neoliberalism, is that there's no relationship between economic activity and social cause. So the notion of ethics and the notion of social responsibility drops out. It doesn't become relevant anymore. Providing a framework for being able to pollute rivers, to being able to starve people because we don't believe the welfare state is worthwhile, shrinking people's pensions, putting kids in cages, claiming elderly people should die in order for the economy to work. And this is an international logic, whether we're talking about Boris Johnson, we're talking about Trump. All of this is part of a larger machinery of death. That is the last stronghold, the last breath of white supremacist logic that move from the margins of society to the center of society. You have written quite a bit, especially recently, about manufactured ignorance. And that's, I think, not a new thing, but it has become so exponential with the advent of social media and that sort of thing. Would you please talk about what you mean about manufactured ignorance, Henry Giroux? What I'm trying to say Again, I always wonder if if I'm saying it properly. What I'm trying to say is that it becomes very essential for ruling powers to make sure that people are stupid. And what that means is that education has now become central to politics. Education is a fundamental dimension of what it means to control people. An education rooted in oppression, domination, misinformation, lies, disregard for science, and the underfunding of all public spheres that would provide the conditions for people to be both critical, informed, and engaged. John Dewey got it right. He said, without an informed citizenry, you don't have democracy. And it seems to me that we can go back as we can go as far back as the Powell memo to the Trilateral Commission to a whole range of policies that make it very clear that the Republican war on democracy has become a war on truth and ideas. But more importantly, it's become a war on agency, a war on narrative, a war on how people define themselves. And ignorance is absolutely central to that. And it seems to me that that notion of ignorance as an educational concept cannot be confused merely with schooling. Schools have been defunded. Teachers have been de-skilled. They've been under attack. They've been sources of endless violence. They've been militarized. We've put more police security forces in than we do teachers. So schools are no longer really seen as public spheres whose purpose is to educate young people. They're seen as public spheres to train people for the workplace, and they really kill any sense of the imagination that would allow them to be critical citizens. But, Joy, and here's where it gets interesting. The notion of manufactured ignorance is now central to a range of cultural apparatuses concentrated in the hands of relatively few people. Call it the social media, call it the mainstream media, call it the liberal media, whose purpose is to basically destroy the conditions for people to be able to discern the difference between truth and lies, good and evil. So the notion of social responsibility and shared values drops out of the logic of education. And what you get is a form of manufactured ignorance in which people give up their sense of agency in a very profound way to become part of a cult, to believe that their identities rest on a notion of transgression in which truth becomes the enemy and education becomes a liability. And the media are the enemy of the people. I'm glad you brought up that distinction between schooling and education, because I was going to ask you about that. And you go on in the essay, fighting back against the age of manufactured ignorance, resistance is still possible. It's not just a matter of learning, but crucially, also of unlearning. Would you expand on that, please? 
We live in a culture in which so much is normalized that's evil. So much is normalized that basically undermines our own sense of who we are. And I'll just give you a personal story so the audience can understand this. Look, as a working class kid, I grew up with a very unfavorable view of women. Are you serious? I mean, as a working class kid, you know, women are seen as bodies, right? To say the very least, you buy into a notion of racism that becomes so normalized in my white working class neighborhood that with time I had to unlearn that. You have to unlearn not to be a racist. You have to unlearn not to hate women, to be a misogynist. You have to unlearn to believe that capitalism and democracy are the same thing. You have to unlearn the fact that greed is is not a virtue. You have to unlearn the fact that when you live in a democracy, self-interest is not the highest ideal that you can cling to if you really believe that compassion and justice are about working with other people. These are all the things you have to learn. You have to learn that freedom doesn't mean you have the right to kill other children in the name of freedom. You have to learn that power should be held accountable, that justice is ongoing. You have to learn that we need to fight together and share values and and fight for the common good rather than simply say that our freedom rests on providing anything that we want regardless of the consequences. I mean, these issues are so normalized in the culture, they become what Adorno called second nature. You don't think about them anymore. And you have to basically find ways to penetrate and rupture these codes, not just by learning about them, but by experiencing them. There's a certain joy in community. There's a certain joy in not being greedy. There's a certain joy in working with other human beings. So we not only have to deal with this intellectually, we have to deal with it by creating the public spaces and the institutions that make it possible. So unlearning to me is absolutely as crucial as what we learn. And, and as my friend Stanley Aronowitz used to say repeatedly, he used to say, hey, look, if unlearning matters, then you've got to take the question of education seriously. And you've got to take the question of popular education seriously. And you've got to take the cultural realm seriously. And you've got to take the question of consciousness seriously. How is it shaped? Where is it shaped? What happens? What are the mechanisms? How do, how do you talk to people in ways that allow them to, in some way, see themselves in the conversation that you're having, in the films that you're having, you're showing, in the words that you're using? How do you make something meaningful to make it critical, to make it transformative? These are all central elements of what I would call a pedagogy of unlearning. I think one of the most controversial aspects in the current era is around critical race theory, which my understanding of it seeks to actually investigate and analyze and unlearn the mythology of much of American history. And it's being really attacked by those who are doing well with the status quo, let's put it that way. You have quite a bit to say about this attack on critical race theory. First of all, would you explain what your understanding of critical race theory is and why you think it's important? First of all, my friend David Theo Goldberg makes a distinction that's crucial. He makes a distinction between critical race theory and critical race studies. Critical race theory is a legal field that emerged out of Harvard, I believe, in in the 1970s and 80s, in which they were trying to understand how racism was institutionalized in the law. 
It's not taught in schools, in elementary or high schools, anywhere, nowhere. It's a basically a, a legal theory. And so the term has been so misappropriated that the people who are using it don't even know what it is. They have no idea where it comes from. They have no idea who the theorists were, most, primarily uh, black scholars at Harvard, Crenshaw and others who basically started it. But critical race studies is something else. And what critical race studies is a whole range of studies that are basically trying to understand how racism is a part of America's history, how it's institutionalized how it's built into structures, whether we're talking about housing or banking or school systems, and to bring it to light because they operate off the assumption that a country should understand the contradiction between its ideals and its realities. And when you understand that, you can address those contradictions, and racism is part of that contradiction to make the country a better place. Now, the attack on critical race theory is really misnamed. Because while the right uses the word critical race theory because it's very easy to use and it, it sounds profound, it's really an attack on critical thinking. It's really an attack on any form of critical thought. That's why they're going after schools, public schools, passing laws saying they'll be defunded if teachers talk about diversity or they talk about race or they talk about sexism because all these things allegedly on the part of the right, they alienate white people and make them feel uncomfortable. This is really an attack on the social imagination. This is really an attack on critical consciousness and critical thinking. This is really an attack on any notion of learning that is connected to social change. Any notion of learning that is connected to and somehow taking the knowledge that we learn to the social problems that we face and trying to understand what the relationship is. Let's be honest about this. This is nothing more than systemic repression. That's all it is. This is an attack on free speech. It's an attack on dissent. But most importantly, it's an attack on any educational institution that takes the question of learning and its relationship to justice seriously. It's also an attack on any notion of critical agency. They do not want knowledge to be linked to critical agency. Let me just qualify that quickly. When we talk about critical pedagogy and we talk about education in general, we're really talking about the formation of agents. We're talking about the production of particular forms of identities. We're talking about the legitimation of particular kinds of values. We're talking about what it means to push the imagination in children, to create the conditions but that imagination can soar, and they have some sort of critical understanding of themselves, their relationship to others, and the larger world. The right does not want that to happen because it sees it as a way to expand democracy, and they want to shut it down. They want to shut down any notion of education that has anything to do with, in some way, generating a fidelity to democracy itself and the agents necessary to both sustain it, make it meaningful, and to expand it. We are speaking with Professor Henry Giroux. We are so fortunate to have him come again to Forthright Radio. And thank you in particular for explaining the difference between critical race theory and critical race studies. It seems to me that those who are reactionary about the idea of investigating our history from a perspective that might balance out white supremacy with another set of facts. And describing that is, quote, they are teaching our children to hate being white. It seems to me that that's very self-revealing because at the basis it says If we actually find out what our history is like, it will reveal such hateful things that white children will have to hate themselves for it. I just just think that's very, very revealing. 
Joey, that's just another insight of how brilliant you are. I think that it's absolutely, you're absolutely right. And I think that what they're basically saying, if I can put it in a way that's much less sophisticated than the way you said it, is that if you make me feel uncomfortable, that means I hate myself. That's really nothing more than a, than a logic for conformity, stupidity, and ignorance. I mean, it seems to me any form of learning is always a struggle. But I think that there's something else at stake here, and that is there are moments in our history that are basically revealing and dangerous. And those moments that are revealing tell us something about our history that we ordinarily don't look at and don't know. Then there are dangerous memories. And those dangerous memories are there are people who rise up in the midst of those struggles and attempt to change them. And they're very threatening. So what they're really confusing and purposely confusing is an attempt to say that anything that's threatening to white supremacy, anything that's threatening to fascist politics, makes people uncomfortable. <laughs> and what they're really talking about is themselves. Yes, it makes them uncomfortable, because the last thing that they want is to have children or others or adults to basically raise questions that they can't answer and refuse to answer, and systemically suppress by suppressing history, suppressing critical thought, defunding schools, turning them into test factories, and claiming that teachers basically don't deserve the positions that they have. So we'll de-skill them. That's what they're talking about. What the real threat here is not that people will feel uncomfortable. The real threat here is that their power will be held accountable. Henry, I know that one of the things you do is you are still in contact with university students. I, I'm not sure what level it is that you're teaching still, but you still are teaching. And what's come up recently is a reaction, what people are calling cancel culture. And I'm hearing that a number of students, anyway, are expressing a fear of speaking in classes at the university level, not just because they'll be confronted in the classroom, but because so much ugly bullying and, and stuff happens online in social media afterwards that they're just shutting down and they're not speaking in classes anymore. This is what I'm being told. I'm wondering, first of all, is that what you're seeing? And could you enlighten us as to which level of students you're actually teaching these days? I teach both undergraduates and graduate students. But I have to tell you, there are two things that have to be noted here that are important. First of all, I teach in Canada. This is not the United States. There's far more latitude in being able to engage people critically. And this is a country that believes in civic literacy. It has its own problems and its own history, that's for sure, particularly around the, the treatment of indigenous people. But these things are public issues. People are talking about this stuff. I teach at a wonderful university. I teach at McMaster University which in many ways offers faculty the opportunity to be engaged and to be critical. My students are very, my, my, I'm, I'm lucky. I mean, the undergraduates that I work with are just out of this world, actually. And they're not afraid to talk about anything in class. And they're not worried about going home and all of a sudden getting a message claiming that they're, they're stupid because they believe that racism is wrong. These are kids who engage those issues. My graduate students are out of this world. They're involved in a, a critical dialogue. They critique each other. They do it in the classroom. And I think the real issue here is as a teacher, and I can only speak for myself, is you have to have the civic courage to allow that to happen. You have to be able to recognize that your views can be challenged, and you have to encourage that. And you have to do everything you can to, to make students aware of the fact that there's a certain dignity in being accountable for what you say, and that you should do it in a space that's protective and safe. 
And when you do that, something happens with students, in my estimation, pedagogically. They emerge. They become strong. They're not fearful. They're not worried that I'm going to cancel them out because they say something I don't like. When they say something that I disagree with, I say, let's talk about this. What are the consequences? Where does it come from? How do we deal with it? And we work with it. And some students change their opinions and some students don't. But I want to give them the dignity to be able to recognize that to be voiceless is to be powerless. And I don't want them to be powerless. All of this is secondhand, thirdhand information to me, so I really don't know. But it is something I am concerned about, the general difficulty that people have, not just in the universities, but in families and in social situations of disagreeing with one another. It, it's, it seems to be in decline, and I think that we all lose if that is so. My experience in Canada is very different from what I see going on in the United States and in many other countries in the world. And I think you're absolutely right. There is a certain brutality that has emerged around manufactured ignorance that seems to suggest that the language of violence is more important than the language of understanding and the language of critique. And I think people are fearful. And I think that when you see doctors who basically, and, and healthcare workers who are coming out of hospitals who are being attacked by these, these really these, these thugs because they're, they're trying to do everything they can to make sure that their lives and their children's lives are safe, by wearing masks, that's serious. And I think the real question that we have to ask ourselves is not why is not acknowledging simply that uh, there's a certain brutality that's being associated with dialogue and the attempt to talk to each other, but the conditions that give rise to this. And I think that what we're seeing in the part of a Republican Party is particularly is a party that believes that language should operate in the service of violence and that violence is justified. Whether we're talking about Marco Rubio at one point claiming that a bus being driven by Biden supporters being run off the road was okay, or right-wingers now claiming that the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th were political prisoners and are political prisoners or and patriots. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? I mean, what, what, what you have rising to the culture, this, this gangster culture, this fascist culture, this white supremacist culture in the United States is the death of dialogue. And when you have the death of dialogue, you have the legitimation of force. So we're not just talking about conflicts. We're talking about force now being raised to a central national ideal, which becomes the mediator for how we deal with opposition. I wonder, you know, some people are making a direct connection between the events of 9-11 and the events of January 6th, 2021. I wonder if you see that sort of connection. Absolutely. I mean, let's, let's talk about Islamophobia. Let's talk about the rise of borders. Let's talk about the language of hate and how it gets embedded in a war culture in which everybody is an enemy who basically offers any form of criticism. Let's talk about the racism and the nativism that came out of, the culture of cruelty that came out of 9-11. To me, there's a direct line between the aftermath of 9-11 and Donald Trump, a direct line. I think that it's impossible to talk about the rise of Trumpism and the rise of fascist politics in the United States without talking about the aftermath of 9-11. Look, when you have a country that believes that people should be tortured and that the rule of law should basically become a form of maligned lawlessness, when you believe that power can be concentrated in so few hands in defense of American exceptionalism, when you believe in a language that operates in a friend-enemy distinction, when you believe that violence basically becomes the major social way, method, uh, in which to solve problems, then the forces of extremism start to breathe again. And they not only start to breathe again, they become legitimated not simply on the margins 
in the echoes of history, but they've become legitimated at the center of power. You did a wonderful interview with Sonali Kolhatkar in which you described the three fundamentalisms driving the resurgence of fascist politics in the United States. We've already talked about one of them, manufactured ignorance, but would you speak about the other ones, free market fundamentalism and religious fundamentalism? I, I think free market fundamentalism, to me, is as powerful as the divine right of kings was in the Middle Ages. It's a philosophy that, of course, emerges in full force in the 1970s, and it operates off the assumption that capitalism and democracy are the same thing, that market forces basically should determine not just the economy, but all of social life, that basically there's, there's no such thing as a relationship between economic activity and, and social cost, that economics drives politics that privatization, commodification, and deregulation should be the laws of the land. And I think in many ways, it's emphasis on unchecked individualism, harsh competition, the undermining of, of the welfare state, of all forms of solidarity, not linked to the accumulation of profits, the death of the social has been so powerful, not just in terms of its consequences, Joy, but in terms of how it echoes Margaret Thatcher's notion there's no alternative. It saturates every educational institution in the United States. There is no labor section in the papers. There are business schools that simply teach capitalism. They don't teach about socialism. You can't go anywhere without the values of neoliberalism, market fundamentalism being reproduced in one way or another. You want to get people to basically get a shot? Pay them $100. Market incentives are the only things that matter. Not justice, not compassion, not a respect for human life. And so it seems to me that that fundamentalism has, although I think it's particularly since the economic crisis of 2008, is now losing its legitimacy. It no longer, I mean, what the coronavirus crisis did was it made clear that market forces cannot address social problems, that they're not geared to, for instance, invest in public health. Look at the UK, look at the United States, that they have no respect for human life. Let, all the, let the elderly die. Let's put them in homes in hurricanes and put them on mattresses, basically on wet floors. Let's take away food stamps from young children who have nothing to eat. It goes on and on. And what we now see is that market fundamentalism has now evolved into a form of fascist politics in which we claim the real problems we have are not because of the economy. The real problems that we have are because of blacks and immigrants, Muslims, and so forth and so on. The religious fundamentalism, it seems to me, is so embedded in the United States. And we see it not only in the support for Donald Trump, with all the hypocrisy that this religious fundamentalism seems to suggest. And by the way, when I say religious fundamentalism, I'm not arguing that all religions are fundamentalists by any stretch of the imagination. What I'm arguing is that there's a certain sector of what we call the religious landscape that has sold its soul to power, that has used its own alleged religious ideals to back a war against women, to back vigilante justice in Texas, to back Donald Trump, who is basically a fascist. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing power being used in the name of religion, which in turn is then used to reproduce fascist politics. That's religious fundamentalism. It's interesting that you mentioned the divine rights of kings. It brings up the memory of Ursula Le Guin, the, the tremendous writer of science fiction primarily, but brilliant thinker. She 
reminded in the context of not being able to see beyond the possibilities of anything other than capitalism, that at one time, the divine rights of kings was just the limits of anybody's understanding. And this brings up what you call the disimagination machine. Would you talk about that and how difficult it is to imagine beyond our current state? I think that when you have a culture that is toxic, that spreads into every facet of American life, is so much in control by a corporate elite who are able to legitimize and normalize their views, what you really see is not just the death of democracy. You see the precondition for the death of democracy, which is the death of the social imagination, which is the death of the ability to think critically and act courageously to think otherwise in order to act otherwise. And you see it permeate not just on an individual level. You see that culture sort of exude its toxic poison in almost every institution in which we find ourselves, whether we're talking about the schools, whether we're talking about the healthcare system, whether we're talking about the social welfare programs that monitor people with these new technologies to make sure that they don't get the benefits they deserve, whether we're talking about a Congress, that in, in many ways by both parties is so wedded to the logic of capital that it does everything it can to make sure that the institutions that matter in a democracy that produce this manufactured ignorance uh, wouldn't exist, uh, that they have to exist. And so these disimagination machines, which take on and challenge the assumption that cultural apparatuses simply give us the news, are simply balanced, are simply provide entertainment, it's all nonsense. They're not about entertainment. They're not about, they're selling people to advertisers. They're turning people into consumers. They're telling people that justice doesn't matter. They're telling people that don't think it's too tiring. They're telling people to follow cults. They're telling people to give up their souls, give up their sense of agency, give up their ability to be in the world and to have a voice and to learn how to govern. That's what they are. They're disimagination machines. They strip democracy of the possibility of being able to think otherwise. I appreciated your quoting Zygmunt Bauman with his concept of ethical tranquilization that really resonated with me. You speak that, that we are in the new era of image politics, and you talk about the idea of ocular politics. Please explain what that is, and then a counter-ocular politics. Joy, you must have read everything I wrote. I mean, you know, I'm so amazed by how smart you are. My God. Yes, okay. Oracular politics. What I'm trying to say is that we, politics has become image-based. You know, we live in a culture that's basically now incredibly visual. Henry, Henry, movie. let me interrupt you. That's a, you. You made a very interesting slip. You called it oracular politics. It's, no, no, oracular no, ocular politics. We were, it is ocular. almost oracular. <laughs> but go on. With- it is, yes, yes, sorry, ocular politics. It's an image-based politics. It, it basically, what it's saying is that, what I'm trying to say is that the culture now, and other people have said this, of course, the culture now is really rooted in a spectacle. It's spectacularized. These images flood over us every day. 
coming out of these cultural apparatuses that basically operate off a, a culture of immediacy and a culture of consumption. And this ocular politics has come to be the defining feature of politics itself. In many ways, what it does is it empties out the ability to, to think in ways that are analytical, to think in ways that are historical, to think in ways that are relational. Of course, cultural apparatuses that are defying this, that don't do that, whether it's PBS at some point or the variety of alternative social media apparatuses, whether we're talking about Truth Out or we're talking about Counterpunch and your program, programs like yourself who are fighting this. My argument is that what we need to take seriously, particularly as an educational issue to fight this ocular politics, is to educate people to how to produce the spheres that produce it. We can't be just critical of this kind of politics because we need to be, in, in a sense, both inside and outside of these apparatuses that produce now the spectacularization of politics in order to inside to undermine them and to be able to create room and whenever possible for other positions, but also outside, one foot in and one foot outside to educate people to be cultural producers who can produce their own programs, who can take advantage of the social media, who can offer different positions. This is a battle over the image. But more importantly, it's a battle over the cultural apparatuses that produce those images. I have been so perplexed by the use of images, in particular things like the body of some superhero, I don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, whatever, with Trump's head on top. And that's being put on banners that were at the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. And also, I have seen images of Jesus with AR-15s and things like that. I just am perplexed by these things. But they seem, the one of Jesus with the AR-15 is, is less prominent. But so many of the things with Trump in these, to me, just ridiculous images, but they seem to resonate. I mean, I think that you've hit it right on the head with the word resonate. And I think that what we're, we underestimate with this ocular culture is its emotional resonance and the intensity of its emotional power. It appeals to rural emotions and it works. When you take away the ability to critically engage those images and you're hit with what I call the shock value of this culture, in the way it can just whack you, you know, with an image that's so surprising and, and so un unreal, it then becomes reality. It, it then becomes a shorthand. We, we're trading in shorthands. Understand this, right? We need the language and the images of shorthand, shortcuts, in order to bypass what would be a more comprehensive attempt to try to understand the world in which we live. This is part of the manufactured ignorance that we talk about. Images are now enlisted, whether they're manipulated or whatever. They have no bearing to the truth. What they really do is they conjure up feelings that make people feel good, offer an emotional outlet, an emotional uplift to reinforce their own sense of anger and rage, and to misdirect the, their possibility for being political agents in a way that matters. I mean, these are very powerful modes of communication, and I think that we need to take it very seriously, both in terms of what they do and who has control of these images, and how they spread, and how they, be, they can be countered and what kind of language they represent, and what kind of politics they're a part of. We are unfortunately just about out of our time, and I want to leave you with a minute or two to say something that I haven't thought to ask you, but that you feel is important for our listeners to hear. I think that we're at a very dire time in our history. The notion of plague has metastasized. It's no longer simply about medical issues. It's about politics. And I think that 
when you look at what's happening in Texas, when you look at what's happening in Florida, when you look at the attack on women's bodies, the rise of vigilantes, and you look at the way in which children have become political pawns in the hands of fascist politicians, children who could be sacrificed. You look at this is a new dimension of the war on youth. I think that what I'm saying is we have to find a way to come together. We have to find a way to create mass movements. We need to do three things. We need to engage, we need to engage in direct action. We need to stop this machinery of fascist politics from working at every level that we can. We have to engage in a, in a cultural politics in which we take seriously what culture means and how it's become the new politics and the enormous power and force that it has. And thirdly, we've got to take seriously the question of political education. That matters. Education is now central to politics. We are all educators in the best sense. And we have to use the force of words, the force of images, the force of institutions, and the forces of mass struggle to come together to counter this. Because we have a very short leash here. And this country, the United States, is on the brink of fascism, full-blown fascism. And the implications of that are too dire to basically even ponder at this point. But we see, we, we see possibilities for change everywhere. Women are organizing like never before. Black youth are organizing. We're organizing across borders. People are organizing around the death of the planet, the potential death of the planet. And so all we have to do is bring these movements together, seize this moment, and do everything we can to bring this machinery of death to an end. Well, I'm glad that we ended on that note and not some of our earlier notes, because I think that is what we need to do, see the potential that's coming from the grassroots and burgeoning even as these other elements of violence are as well, and just put our energy towards the life-giving, the biophiliac, instead of the necrophiliac. Henry Giroux, thank you so much for your work, for joining us again, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. Joy, you're one of the best interviewers I have ever dealt with. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to respond. Oh, one more question. The reason we had to do this interview in September instead of August was because you were finishing up a new book. Tell us about the book. I've just written a book called Pedagogy of Resistance Against Manufactured Ignorance. And it's about all the issues that we've talked about today. I mean, I'm absolutely concerned with the, the question of education. I'm absolutely concerned with what I call apartheid pedagogy, a pedagogy in the service of institutional and, and ongoing racism. And I'm also concerned with the, the question of language, the language of critique and hope, and how it comes together, and how we need to rethink a new politics and a new, with a new language, with a new sense of urgency and a new sense of possibility. Well, we'll have to have you back on. When is that going to be published? March next year. You have just heard a conversation with Professor Henry Giroux, McMaster University Chair for Scholarship in the Public Interest and the Paolo Freire Distinguished Scholar in Critical Pedagogy. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. You can also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews there at forthright.media. 
As our guest today on Forthright Radio, Henry Giroux, said so well, it is urgent that we create and maintain institutions, as he calls them, cultural apparatuses that can resist the seemingly overwhelming forces of violent political extremism, fascism, and brutal neoliberal global capitalism, and that it's up to each one of us to do this. Since October of 1989, KZYXNZ has been offering listeners at first, just within the geographical range of the broadcast signal. But for years now, we've been able to reach a global community of resistance to malignant cultural apparatuses that play on our lizard brains, cultivating fear, anger, aggression, all for the short-term gain of clicks or ratings. We do our very best to research and fact-check the often bizarre assertions permeating the social media sphere or the distorted interpretation of facts that support the money-making machines of the 1%. This requires diligence, devotion, integrity, perspicacity, and perseverance. And especially during a time of pandemic, when we have been so isolated, community radio serves as an audio connection not only to inform, but to comfort. And to support and maintain this cultural apparatus requires the investment of each of us in whatever way we can to do it. Our fun drives are the perfect time to shed feelings of isolation and cultural alienation and contribute. It is an antidote to that feeling of alienation or isolation. First, you open your heart, and then you open your purse. And it's one of the most effective acts of resistance I know of. It dispels the false notion that there's nothing one individual can do because we aren't just one when we join with others. No matter how little or how seldom you can manage it, the opportunity is there to invest in your own well-being and your community at the local level all the way up to the planetary level. Because folks, at this point, the stakes are planetary. But the resistance is local. Please, exercise your power and contribute to this marvelous cultural apparatus, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX and Z. You can go to kzyx.org and click on the support button at the top menu, or you can call the station during working hours at 707-895-2324. Thanks for listening and for supporting your community radio station, KZYXNZ. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire, signing out for now. Everyone needs a nice place to live in, and good food to eat that's not too expensive, and clean clothes with no holes or patches, a doctor to call an old friend to visit, a way to get places, parties, and music, a street to walk safely and benches to sit on with shade in the summer and warm, friendly places to be in the winter. Some work to do that's useful to others and doesn't get boring. And someone checking so no one's forgotten. Money to spend that's given and taken without feeling guilty. Love without pity. Pride without anger. Everyone knows what everyone needs. But programs, laws, city councils, commissions, agencies, bureaus can't give it to us. All of us need the best in each other. And if we can find it, and if we can give it, the rest will soon follow. If we all stick together, we'll get what we need. 
This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.